Hello and welcome to The More the Merrier with Donna G. We have Aladdin Connection today on the show. Later on in the show, you'll hear from Bernardo Ruiz, a two-time Emmy nominee documentarian, and we'll be talking about his film El Equipo, which is streaming until Tuesday, May the 9th at Hot Docs. But up first, here's my interview with the coordinator of Pantemos, which is the Latin American ensemble of the Upper Canada Coursers, to talk about the 15th anniversary celebration and the concert that's happening at Grace Church on the Hill on May the 12th at 300 Lonsdale Road. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Music on today's show is provided by Cantemos. to the more the merrier with donna g on ciut 89.5 fm and i'm very happy to welcome back to the show jacinto salcedo jacinto welcome hola donna how are you doing bien gracias um (laughs) so you are the coordinator of cantemos which is the Latin um, ensemble, which is part of the Upper Canada Choristers. And you're celebrating 15 glorious years. I just played, am I saying it right? If I say, Tlecantimo Choquilla? Tlecantimo Choquilla. Choquilla, okay. That's correct. Thank you. So I just played a part of that track and... um, I understand that you are the lead on that, Jacinto. Oh, yeah, I, I, I am the soloist on that song. That is correct. Beautiful voice. It's nice to hear you Thank rising. Thank you. So tell me about um, Cantemos, as I said, is the Latin, ense- Latin ensemble of part of Upper Canada Chorister. So tell me what country, I can guess, but tell the audience what country this is from. So, Tlecantimo Chuquililla is a song uh, from Mexico. It was composed in the late um, 18th century by Gaspar Fernandez. Gaspar Fernandez was a Portuguese-Mexican organist, and he took the language of Nahuatl 
and he tried to make a uh, Villancico, which is a Christmas song. So this, funny enough, this song is a Christmas song. We chose that song for our concert for several reasons. One is in the 50, 15 years that Cantemos has been around, we've been trying to bring a broad spectrum of culture from Latin America, not just pop, not just, you know, classical. We want to have a, not just folk. We want to have like a huge range. And that's why we sing in Spanish or we sing in Portuguese, we sing in Latin, but sometimes we uh, sing in native languages as well, like in this case, Nahuatl. So right. we wanted to, sh to showcase this piece that, that is in an indigenous language from Mexico and it's part of our repertoire. Um, so, and that, as well, it's a good segue to tell you that Cantemos was formed after the what we call the main choir, Opera Canada Choristers. They had a concert called Voices of Earth, maybe 18 years ago. In that concert, they had they featured different pieces from different parts of, of the world. And then all of a sudden, they realized that they have at the time several people from Venezuela and Colombia, and they said, okay, let's try to make this um, culture-specific choir within the choir, this ensemble. So, and ever since, in the, in the last 50 years, we've been um, trying to become what we call the uh, cultural ambassadors of Latin American music and uh, Latin American choral music. The funny part is that Nowadays, you know, choir membership shifts and changes. People move and you have other interests. Of the eight members that we have right now, only two speak Spanish and only two are from Latin America. So it's a beautiful thing that in a city like Toronto, where we are this mosaic of cultures, we can still cultivate this choir that is uh, with a repertoire from Latin America, when only two of the members are actually from Latin America. And in that sense, me as a Venezuelan guy, I feel not only represented, I feel seen by, by my choir mates and my conductor because they appreciate my culture that much that they want to celebrate and to make a big deal out of it. And your conductor is Lori Yvonne Fraser, and the concert that's coming up is on Friday, May the 12th, and it's happening at 7.30 at 300 Lonsdale Road. So that uh, piece that you just heard is just a taste of what you can hear at the concert. And um, there's also a song that I want to talk to you about it's from Colombia, and mm -hmm. it's uh, Merecumbe. Merecumbe, yeah. Merecumbe. Merecumbe. Is, yeah, it's a mix of cumbia and merengue. Oh, and, that makes sense to me now. <laughs> and it it is a it's a, a um, kind of jan a dancing genre from Colombia, and. Um, the song specifically we're going to sing is, is called Cosita Linda. Cosita Linda will translate as beautiful thing. So this guy is basically basically flirting with uh, with this woman and he's calling calling her uh, 
You Beautiful Thing. Okay. And um, it's by Pancho Galan. What can you tell me about Pancho Galan? Uh, Pancho Galan was a um, composer. He didn't do choral music, right? We're doing an arrangement of his music. He he used to have uh, orchestras in Colombia that play in weddings and parties, right? Like, so these are like big band orchestras that play all kinds of music from uh, boleros that, you know, to to slow dance to more animated music like uh, cumbia or merengue or salsa. But he was kind of uh, that kind of musician. In, and he was quite successful in the 70s uh, with a lot of recordings. Let's <laughs> listen to um, a part of Cosita Linda, and then I'll be right back to talk more about the concert with Jacinto Salcedo. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Jacinto Salcedo, who is the coordinator of Cantemos, which is the Latin American ensemble, which is part of the Upper Canada Foresters. They're celebrating Cantemos's 15th anniversary with a concert, Our Voices Together, Corazones al Unisono, and you just heard the track Cosita Linda, which I have learned is a Mericumbe from Colombia. Jacinto, also as part of the concert on May the 12th, is a piece of music making its world premiere, El Pájaro Que Espero. Yes, El Pájaro Que Espero, which translate 
the bird I await. It's a commission that we requested Cesar Alejandro Carrillo to write for us. Um, so when we told him that the concept of this concert, um, our voices together, corazones al unisono. Corazones al unisono means our hearts in unison. So we told him about the concert. We told about him about our commitment to do community work, which is one thing that Upper Canada Choristers do a lot. We do the concert that we do, that we're going to do on Friday, then we're going to take it to senior homes and we're going to take it to hospitals. And so we have this community outreach of the choir. So in saying that to Cesar and telling him how important for us was culture and family and, uh, and community, he then said, okay, leave it with me. And he engaged uh, his wife, uh, Laura Morales Balsa. Uh, Laura, she's a poet. She is a, um, a photographer, graphic designer, and she sings in Cesar's uh, choirs. So they took their time and they came back with this song based on, on a poem that is El Pájaro Que Espero. And El Pájaro Que Espero is a song about their song. Simón was the song of Cesar and Laura and died a few years ago at a very young age. Mm. And um, so this song, sorry, I get emotional. <laughs> yeah, when a child passes, yeah. it's emotional. Yeah, so this song bring, um it's a message of hope. It's a message of certainty. It's a message of understanding that, for instance, La Laura said that singing is what kept her alive. I is see. what make her what make her overcome the death of her son. And in this poem, she writes from a certainty of peace and acceptance and um, and awaiting to hear for this bird for from kind of signs from nature that life continues, right? So, so we're very moved that they are letting us um, sing this song for the first time. And um, we, we feel privileged, right? But at the same time, Laura told me that she felt like the opportunity to write this song for her was a gift. It's part mm. of her grieving. It's part of her grieving, right? And um, that must have so, yeah. been so. That must have been so difficult, um, you know, for them, for them to write. And and I understand that there is as well healing in music, right? And there's healing in this uh, composition. And she told us that she has the hope that this song can bring peace and hope to people, the same as he is doing it for them as a couple, right? Yeah. So we're going to premiere this song on Friday, uh, Friday the 12th. And uh, we're so excited, but we're still, um, we're holding this song like a beautiful gem, right? Like, mm -hmm. like we have this precious gift that that we get to, 
to premiere here in Toronto, like so far away from Venezuela. But at the same, it's such a universal uh, subject, right? And uh, and I feel so connected, even that we're so distant, we're so connected in all these um, human emotions. And you're celebrating her son, you're celebrating them, and you're, you know, you're celebrating all the lost children, you know, the little birds. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that is um, The Bird I Await, El Pájaro Que Espero. And, um, oh, I'm just so touched by, by the <laughs> meaning behind that song. Um, so let's let's move it back to, to you, Jacinto. Yes. You have composed a work called... Um, La Rosa de los Vientos. Tell yes. me about composing that work. So, ten years, uh, five years ago, for the tenth anniversary of Cantanos, we did like a similar idea. I I had this bunch of poems, and we showed it to Cesar Alejandro, and he chose La Rosa de los Vientos. La Rosa de los Vientos is um, is a song as well about family. It's about feeling, first of all, La Rosa de los Vientos is the wind rose, is the compass, is this um, uh, artifact that helps us to guide us in life, right? And um, this poem, I was writing it to my own daughters in the sense of like, they were about to leave for college, but at the same time, I felt that that kind of separation that you get when a family member goes away from you, like I did with my parents in Venezuela, I wanted for them as well to feel a certainty that I will be there to help them, to guide them. I help. I hope that all the teachings that I could have given them, they have them with them, right? And then... And the distance and the, the 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 oceans that separate us is the exact same oceans that keep us together, that connect us. And um, and the song ends like, I'm just hoping that when you come back, I can give you all the hugs and kisses that I haven't given you in a while. What do um, they think of this song? Who? Your daughters. <laughs> what do your secret. daughters? They, they don't know I wrote it about them. Jacinto. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they know the song, but I never told them that it, it was written thinking about them. Why not? It was, at the time, like five years ago, it was a very intimate moment. It was a very, you know, you know, when when you write diaries right mm-hmm. at the time at the time you write it for you and over time you share your ideas or or those thoughts that were written down you are okay to make them public and i think it's the same thing now i think it was a very intimate uh, moment for me that now i'm ready to to let them know that it was written for them so did you start this as a poem and then set it to music? 
or was yes. it always yes. okay? Yes, it was like that. I the poem was written, I don't know, a few years ago, and then Cesar took it and put it into into a, a choral piece, right? So, I, and for me as well, it was like it was like this piece of poetry had a second birth because um, the raw uh, poem, it's a poem, but then with, with music, it has so many more layers of, of uh, emotions and so many more layers of, of um, expression, right? And uh, yeah, that's the way it worked. I did not know that you were a poet, Jacinto. Neither did I. <laughs> As I so, told you, those these are like uh, pieces of writing that I kept for myself. And I shared at the time with Cesar. And so he took it and made it into a song. And I said, oh, maybe maybe I, I write poems. Have I you written more? A, yes, I have. Good. But I think it... it I think it's a different approach when you do it for yourself and you do it the reasons for why you why you write poetry, right? I'm not doing it for recognition, I'm not doing it to prove anybody anything, I'm not doing it for literature, I'm doing it because it was the way I found myself able to express some feelings. Okay. Have you been with Cantemos uh, all 15 years? Uh, no, I haven't. I've been with them. I'm I'm going to guess maybe twelve years. Okay, all right. So so a long time. I'm sure you would like some more Latin representation. So now is your chance. Well, actually, it would be great, right? I, I think we the, we would like to incorporate more people from Latin America, right? From from different countries, from different cultures. Um, and at the same time, I love the idea of keeping as well all our members, right, that are so into this music. And for instance, Ajako, which is one of our singers, she's Japanese. Or um, Lisa, which she's from, uh, from an Italian background. Or Laurie, she, she is um, Irish. You know what I mean? Like it, it's yeah. Toronto. It's people yeah. from everywhere. And and I was just I, gonna say that. I yeah. was saying this is very Toronto. This the makeup it's, of this choir. It is but so Toronto. Yeah. How large a group do you think Cantemos could be? What's your ideal number if you could get a solid number so, of people? So we want to keep it as an ensemble, right? In the sense of a smaller group is more challenging because each singer becomes a soloist. Because, for instance, if we do a um, four-piece uh, song, you have only two singers per uh, <clears throat> sorry per part. But then sometimes we have solos or we have um, split parts, and so we want to keep the idea of having like this kind of highly spe specialized singers choir but at the same time i think we can be double the size like we could be easily 16 okay people, what's right? the large what's the largest cantemos has been 12 i think it would be great for you to get somebody from let's say ecuador we would love <laughs> that no we would love to get people from ecuador bolivia peru 
Colombia, Brazil, Argentina, yeah. all the 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 Caribbean. So uh, that you can get. The... So you can get. Um, so you can incorporate their songs and see the differences in the Latin styles. Absolutely, absolutely. Because you've introduced me to Merecumbe. And and we are firm believers of cross pollination, right? Like you know, the the more the more influences we have, the richer our culture is. It's more delicious, right? It it becomes. Let me tell you this way: the more, the merrier. Yes, <laughs> I would certainly. <laughs> That's the reason for my show: the more, the merrier. Um, Jacinto, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you. And again, listeners, the concert is taking place on Friday, May the 12th, 7.30 p.m. And those who are 16 and under with an adult are free. The regular price is $25. Mass wearing is strongly recommended. And for more information, you can phone 416-256-0510. That's 416 416- Two five six zero five one zero, or email info at uppercanadacoristers.org. And Jacinto, we're going to leave with your track, La Rosa de los Vientos. Gracias. Muchas Yeah.
Next is my interview with two-time Emmy nominee Bernardo Ruiz to talk about his documentary, El Equipo. It is streaming at Hot Docs until May the 9th. More information can be found at www.hotdocs.ca. You're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G., on CIUT 89.5 FM. Joining me right now is documentarian Bernardo Ruiz, who is joining me to talk about his film El Equipo, The Team. Bernardo, welcome to CIUT. Great to be here and great to be connected with you. I First of all, when I saw the El Equipo in uh, the Hot Docs uh, Festival Guide, I thought, oh, football movie, I'm interested. And then I read the uh, and then I read what it was about. And I thought, oh, I'm even more interested because this was concerning um, the disappeared. And I'd seen films, do- other documentaries, um, Patricio Guzman, for example, I've seen his work on the disappeared. And so I was very interested in viewing your film, El Equipo, and I'm so glad I did. What a wonderful film, Bernardo. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I appreciate you, you know, uh, connecting to the subject matter or being interested in the film. And um, it is it is in some ways grim subject matter, but I think in other ways, it's just a compelling story. I mean, the the film really narrates the relationship between these this American forensic anthropologist Clyde Snow and this group of students 
And for me, that's really what's at the core of the stories. They're evolving uh, friendship and collaboration and, you know, moments of tension over over decades. And that that really, to me, is at, what's at the core of this story. Okay. So let's get into the story. Um, I'd never heard of Clyde Snow, um, which surprised me. I don't know if I'd forgotten about him or what. So please uh, introduce Clyde to my listeners, please. Sure. I mean, I to me, it doesn't surprise me that um, you, you're obviously have you're pretty erudite and have like you you interview the world through your show. Um, I similarly hadn't heard of Clyde Snow when I started the project. Um, I did become interested in the work of the Argentine forensic anthropology team about a decade ago, uh, actually as far back as 2000. It was before 2012, um, and as I began speaking to members of the team and doing research. Uh, they immediately began referencing Clyde Snow, um, who was this legendary American forensic anthropologist, um, originally from Texas. Uh, but, you know, if you see photographs and footage of him, he's a bit of a, a character. I mean, he's cigar chomping or smoking a pipe, uh, usually wearing a fedora, speaking in these kind of... Um, punchy or sometimes enigmatic phrases, he he seemed to have this persona that was ready-made for film. Years later, I think I would understand that he'd cultivated that persona as a way to garner media attention for some of these cases and issues that wouldn't necessarily have um, gained attention. But uh, Snow ended up serving as a teacher and mentor to this group of Latin American students um, the, the shorthand of the story is basically that in 1984, he traveled to Argentina at the invitation of a group of mothers and grandmothers who were uh, searching for their, their missing children or, or looking to identify uh, missing loved ones. And when Snow arrived, despite not speaking Spanish and I think being somewhat naive politically, um, about what had happened under Argentina's recent dictatorship. He just perhaps didn't understand the full extent of, of what had happened. He, nonetheless, he was able to surmise that a lot of the established medical personnel, the scientists and anthropologists who who'd, um, many had collaborated with the previous dictatorship. So rather than work with them in his efforts to identify the missing and the dead, what he decided to do was seek out a team and uh, eventually as the film shows he found this connected with this group of 19 20 and 20 something year olds and trained up this team um, and that initiated this uh, four decades long collaboration working all over the globe now for the listeners tell tell them um some of the famous people that he had unearthed previously just to put um his his knowledge his experience in context so i mean that's the thing about clyde snow is that he was this legendary figure so he very famously helped identify the skull of the um nazi war criminal and dr joseph mengele um Clyde had also helped identify the victims of the serial killer John Wayne Gacy, um, who was best known as, you know, as dressing up as a clown. So the 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 cases he had worked on 
were very high profile cases. And also, I think to me, there's this interesting link. Um, there's so much true crime, um, you know, people people call it content, but there's so much true crime programming and shows and podcasts out there. Um, and Clyde Snow is this fascinating bridge between that world of, you know, what's considered traditional true crime and the what we show in the film, which is, you know, the the, the serial killers of the state. Um, where it's, you know, generals and uh, heads of state in some cases who are ordering the execution and mass disappearance of people. And and Clyde, I think, you know, made that connection himself very explicitly. He did so in a number of, of press interviews, but he he saw a very clear line between the types of serial killer cases he'd worked on earlier in his career in Texas and the Texas Panhandle in Oklahoma, and then later what he saw in Guatemala and Argentina um uh the the murders had been and atrocities that had been committed at the, the hands of generals and military personnel right and this is the link is the fact that it's a humanitarian issue human rights issue and i'm not sure bernardo if you're aware but uh in canada we also have this human rights issue with our first nations people our first nations children who you know I didn't, I always associated this word um, disappeared with other countries until the bodies of the graves of children, First Nations children were discovered here. In Canada, we also have our disappeared and their First Nations uh, children and also missing and murdered, you know, Aboriginal women as well. So we're not immune. So this is a global uh, issue, which is what I connected with also with this world of the disappeared and this team of young um, anthropology students and their journey is fascinating and you know I love the photo in in the hot dogs guide of them as young people you could tell you know it, it it's from the 80s and um, tell me um, about introduce some of the team uh, to our listeners so they become familiar with you know that with them as people Sure. And I, and to your really excellent point about the First Nations people, the one of the founding members of this team, uh, Luis Fondebreeder, has actually consulted in Canada, uh, specifically around the disappearances of, of women in Canada. So I, um, I really appreciate that point. And I, I think that, some, you know, I'm in New York right now, I'm in the U.S., uh, similarly, I think there's a type of, I, I would call it arrogance in the United States, as if these issues of enforced disappearances or, you know, forced disappearances, um, as if this were, this were solely an issue uh, that happens on foreign shores. And we, we know that's absolutely not the case. No. Um, extrajudicial killings um, and uh, disappearances happen um, with on a regular basis here in the United States, and and to your point, exactly, uh, typically with the populations that have been most marginalized by um, these powerful countries, and clearly in the, in the case of the United States, the U.S. has played the significant role in a lot of the conflicts we see in the film in Argentina, in Guatemala, in in Mexico. So it's um, um, part of what what I, I I think happens organically in the film is we highlight those connections. And and try to to you know make those bigger universal points to say this is something that happens um, everywhere. And I, I think in that regard, it's it's interesting. 
the character of Clyde Snow is interesting to me because he's a white man from Texas, from what in the U.S. we would call, you know, like a red state, a very conservative area. He grew up in a fairly conservative way. And I, I think um, what you see in the film is that he receives a political education from the students. And he was his his politics were were really transformed, um, I would argue. And he certainly had a big shift in the way he thought about things and how he worked with people, um, in large part due to this relationship with this these young Latin American students who are you know much more progressive um, than than he was. So I, I think that's also an interesting dynamic in the film that that I was interested. Um, in, um, and, and to your point, it's, it was, there, there really, there were many, there were, there was a small group of students who would eventually form the Argentine forensic anthropology team. Uh, but in those early days, I, in the film, we really focus on three it was Patricia Bernardi. Her, her nickname was Pato, which means duck. Um, there's Mimi Doretti who would go on to win a MacArthur genius grant for her work and, and Luis von der Breeder, who I mentioned, um, who has done work um, in Canada, and all that, three of them were friends. It's a. Uh, it was very. I didn't expect that connection with Luis uh, that he worked here in Canada. But another thing that struck me was um, the women. So I was very gratified to see that both Mimi and uh, and Pato were part of this forensic team. You know, young women in the field doing the work that they were doing. And, you know, not not initial initially trained, you know, as you said, um, Clyde got these students, thought he could get experts, had to go with these students and he mentored them. And it was great to see there was a particular scene that involves um, a spoon. And I don't want to give it away. So listeners, you're just going to have to um, at some point see this film to, to see what I'm talking about, the strength of these women. Um, you know, I, getting, I, go ahead. I no, no, I don't mean to interrupt. I, I completely agree. And in fact, my entry point into the film was really through Mimi Doretti, who, as I mentioned before, has been she's been recognized internationally for her work. And is a really extraordinary person. Um, when you think back to how young uh, she and her colleagues were, I mean, I think she was 22 when she first started doing this work. And it was immediately after the Argentine dictatorship in, in 84 and 85, um, the people that they were beginning to search for and the graves you know, for which they were beginning to exhume, they were of people uh, their her age and their age, uh, you know, who've been executed by by the military or people attached to the military. So there was um, a high degree of risk. So I think the kind of bravery of Mimi and and Pato in particular, um, all of the members, it just can't be overstated. They were, um, you know, they were certainly young and idealistic, but but not unaware of what the risks were, and yeah. put themselves on the line to to do this work. Right. Um, and I, I think their stories are pretty remarkable because this wasn't a, a life path that they um, <laughs> chose for themselves, but it ended up being their their life's work. And, you know, so we talk about Argentina and, you know, then we then we go to uh, El Mozote in, in El Salvador. And, you know, that's a heartbreaking scene. 
And again, we're talking about marginalized people, First Nations people. Well, exactly. And in that case, um, one of the things that I think uh, is significant and moving and was also very hard as we were putting the film together, um, Mimi, who I mentioned before, she had actually herself began, began documenting uh, their their work. So uh, a lot of the footage, um, this is a film that's made almost entirely out of archival footage, uh, you know, so-called found footage or archi personal archive from the team members themselves or from Clyde Snow. Um, this footage, uh, I think the for El Mosote, for that sequence where we're looking at this um basically this 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 massacre on the part of the military that had been trained by the US in El Salvador and it was a massacre involving um you know hundreds of women and children uh and and elderly folks it's um in, an incredibly intense um sequence to document and it's Mimi herself um filming much of this footage that we see in the film and i i think that without giving anything too crucial away um there's a moment in that sequence where mimi um is looking in the pocket of a little dress of a, of a little girl that had been killed and inside that pocket is a little plastic red horse and there's something about that detail that i think uh you know breaks her in the moment and i think you know as filmmakers it's just a moment that i um it, it continually um it gets me and it speaks to the horror of that moment of these kind of uncontrolled um you know mass as executions and again the, the the critical role that this team has played not just in in latin america and central america but you know in countries throughout the globe they have um collected evidence for human rights trials and in, in many cases, been able to hold the perpetrators accountable. Not, not always, because this is the world that we live in. But the film does show that, um, you know, through through their scientific wor work, they have been able to hold many perpetrators accountable. Yeah, and Clyde started out as the mentor. And, you know, as a mentor, uh, you always want your students to surpass you. And they did. You know, there's a point where... Uh, he was learning from them and uh you know they were able to uh disperse the group grew uh and they keep all grew uh beyond the numbers of a soccer team a football team and um are all over the world you know you go to you have scenes in africa and um is it tajikistan that that you found fit it footage they're, they're actually in, in iraqi kurdistan kurdistan okay yeah. Uh, and but that's exactly right. I mean, I think um, that is another really beautiful part of the story to me is that they uh, fairly early on become technically very sophisticated in their work. Not only that, they they change Clyde Snow's perspective on on how to work. Um, you know, Clyde talks about this in the film where he coming from the U.S. context um in a murder scene or a traditional crime scene you would keep the family members at bay um and, and maybe view them or typically view them as potential suspects but you know at the urging of these younger team members um Clyde begins to learn that you know in in these cases in Latin America you really need to involve the families and they need to be central to any decision making that it needs to be this collective decision making and so um 
you exactly to your point, you see this kind of evolution uh, of the team and you see uh, Clyde, you know, at first being the kind of cigar chomping gringo, you know, American who's coming in and telling them what to do and um, eventually taking a backseat and, and helping them in future investigations. And sometimes the team members themselves using him strate- strategically in these uh, tricky cases like in El Salvador, where it helped to have a, an American um, scientist uh, uh, since uh, given the U.S.'s role in that conflict. Um, but, you know, as the film shows, that w- it was a lifelong uh, collaboration uh, right up until Clyde Snow's death. Um, yeah. And I, I, I do think it's w- one thing I guess is kind of worth noting uh, just as a kind of personal anecdote. You know, early on when I started the film, I reached out to Mimi Duretti and told her that I wanted to make a film about the team, that I was interested in their work. And I think she was skeptical as she should have been but she said, you know, if you're serious about making a film, uh, you need to interview Clyde Snow because he's getting up there in years. And at the time, his his health was a little delicate. So I, I went and interviewed him. Uh, and I, I will say he smoked two packs of cigarettes in our <laughs> in our in our interview. And um, but the thing that I noticed that really stood out to me is he didn't have I didn't see photographs of his his own children, you know, his biological children on the walls. But I did see tons of photographs of the the team members. So I, I think for me, that was this clarifying moment where, um, you know, I realized this this uh, this work had, had meant something uh, deeply, deeply important to him in 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 his life and, and in his work. It must have been jarring for him to realize the extent of the American involvement in, in some of these countries and also the outright lies that were perpetrated by American leaders and fed to, you know, the American media and people. I, I think that that's right. And he had a phrase that he told Freddie Pecorelli, who was another one of his mentees, a, a Guatemalan American forensic anthropologist who does, um, uh, leads the the Guatemalan uh, forensic team and foundation now. Um, but what he told Freddie was, you know, it was my tax dollars that put that helped put these bodies in the ground, um, and therefore I have a responsibility to get them out of the ground. The, I I do think as he goes on in life, he has a growing awareness of the the role that the U.S. played in, in this work. Um, and, and you know, again, this is all happening. He he's in a very conservative area. Um, you know, n- now uh, every year now there's a Clyde Snow Award uh, to young anthropologists doing this human rights based uh, scientific work. So his you know, in addition to his legacy uh, being quite present in the work of the Argentine team and the Guatemalan team, um, there is this award at the University of Oklahoma that's given regularly to to young scientists so his his presence um i i think is is uh you know it's there in many places and i do think that that political shift that you're talking about um happened later in his life which is an interesting trajectory we tend to think of people becoming more hardened in their ways and perhaps more conservative as they get older and i I think the opposite of true you know the opposite was true with, with clyde and let's hope so for for more people I have to ask you about the film poster. 
Um, <laughs> I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I saw this film, I saw this group of young people and, you know, I, now I'm about their age. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, let me, let me watch this. I, I have friends from countries who have talked about the disappeared. So I know, and then, um, I'm looking up and there's a, a new poster and I'm like, what is this? What is this dark poster of black and white uh, with bones? Why? Yeah, it's. I appreciate the the comment. I the I have collaborated with a, a Cuban Cuban American artist, um, uh, Edel Rodriguez, who's a um, just an incredible artist. He's done Der Spiegel covers. He's done covers of the New Yorker. A few years ago, he was at the center of a controversy around uh, covers depicting former U.S. President uh, Donald Trump in some provocative ways. You know, he's a, a very prolific and bold artist. And um, he and I had a lot of back and forth and and we made a choice. And I, I think that that, you know, that, that choice is not obviously to everyone's taste, but the the choice here was to do something sober and also to do something that speaks to the day-to-day work uh, of the team. And the reality is that, you know, as, you know, the decades have gone on, as new technology has been introduced, you know, as all of these things have changed, it really comes down to just being in a hole and um, digging out bones that that has not changed. And so I think uh, that's what's what we re- represent in the poster. Um, but I hear you. I, I hear you. It's it's um, it, it uh, is. It, it, but- it's don't get me wrong. It's a beautiful poster. But for people like myself, if I'd been, you know, flipping through the the hot dogs um, guide, I would not have seen your film. So um, because I would think, oh, I I can't go there. I can't. um, I don't think it's a film that I can handle when, in fact, it is a film that I can handle because of the way it's told, because of Clyde, because of the students because of their personalities, they drew me in, into the story. And if it's somebody, uh, you know, who wants to know more, and this is their first entry, the the poster for me is going to be, uh, is a barrier. Because it's a beautiful, it is a beautiful work of art. For me, it doesn't express what is in your film. Mm-hmm. The team that, and Clyde, that leads to the fact that this is a human rights issue. So it's like, here, let me take you by the hand. Here's a group of young people. Let's see where they're going. Let's see what they're learning. And we're learning as we go along. And it's entry into this um, issue of the disappeared, which is why I thoroughly appreciated uh, your film. I really appreciate the feedback. And that's also you know, why uh, really uh, love journalism and journalists and people think deeply about things because the whole point is to have some you know to hear uh, those different perspectives i appreciate the feedback i think you know that the one thing i often think about is you think about the for profits like the commercial streaming services you know many many of whom i've, I've worked made work for but um I, I feel like the commercial streamers have the opposite problem where they create a poster that you know deeply misrepresents the the film um so if it's uh maybe more somber serious film you have a um you know film that's 
a film poster or like a thumbnail image that's very happy-go-lucky or you know does the opposite so i think that was something that i'm conscious of but but point taken and i i appreciate the um, the, the note there so uh, you are also a mentor did that connect you to to clyde in some way you know i think you mentioned before that um you're you're closer in age to the you know where the team members are now like i'm i'm you know have also <laughs> have grown older over the years and i i think the thing that i i think about a lot and i think i think this this happens when as we get older is we we begin to think about well you know the purpose of our lives like what what are we doing what are we spending our time who are we spending our time with and and also like what are our legacies you know what do we leave behind and um so I have, uh, you know, personally as a, you know, I've, I've spent my life in documentary um, and I have had the opportunity to train and mentor many people working in this, you know, what can be a very difficult field. And I think it's, it's particularly difficult now as they're very commer- you know, commercial pressures to do, you know, only make work about celebrities or only do a certain kind of what I would consider exploitative true crime or these big sports stories, you know, and again, I've, I've done all of this other work. It's just, I, the, I think the industry is uh, shutting out a, a type of uh, more independent film in the documentary uh, space. So yes, I, I, I feel very committed to, to training and developing and, and sharing just my honest experiences with, with other filmmakers and there is an interesting uh, parallel there with with Clyde. I I think um, I I also there's another thing that that happens in the film is that um, you know over time we begin to see the the toll that the work of you know exhuming uh, bones and 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 working in graves and you know frequently mass graves we begin to see that toll on the members of the team and that to me is is, is poignant. It's not something that I'm drawing too much attention to in the film. I mean, I, I think you just see it over time. Um, but you know, you you start off uh, life. You know, you're 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 a younger person. You're you're wearing skinny jeans. You're able to do all these things, and then you know, life has a way of your your body is shaped by your work. Um, your body, you know, changes, and um, I think that's something that. Um, is you know maybe subtly present in the film and, and something I think I, I try to touch on because of of where I am in my life as well. Bernardo, the mentor, the <laughs> documentarian, uh, my doors are always open to you here at CIUT, The More the Merrier. And thank you so much for your film and thank you so much for joining me here today. Thanks so much for the conversation. CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. Stream CIUT at www.ciut.fm.